Go ahead and be seated. When our family lived in New Guinea, one of the first things we did was to buy a four-wheel drive truck. And you have no idea how much of a Montanan it makes me feel like to just say that out loud. <laughs> And we were going to a village to help uh, someone uh, pick up a few supplies, and we were driving down the main road, and somebody in the cab of the truck said, I know a shortcut. And so we turned left, and we turned right, and we turned left, and before we knew it, we were in this huge pile of mud. It took us about an hour and a half to two hours to get unstuck. Finally got back uh, on the main road, and the same guy in the cab of the truck said, Don't worry, bro, Craig. I know another shortcut. <laughs> To which I said, I do not want a shortcut, I want a long cut. Now, little did I know, God is always teaching us things, isn't he? And one of the things that I recognized and I learned is that there is a deep spiritual truth in that experience. Often in life, what we want is the shortcut. And what God is saying, no, I want to take the long cut here. Up to God's reasons and God's occasions. That seems to be what God is doing in the wilderness wanderings. We are told in Exodus 13, 18, that God led the people in the roundabout way. Translation for that is he took the long cut. The long journey to where he was going. See, between chapters 11 and 13 of Exodus, we are told three times that God is going to take the people to the promised land. He even describes it as a land flowing with milk and honey. And when you're on your way to the land flowing with, of milk and honey, and God had said they would go to the wilderness, but you're, say, you're assuming the wilderness is going to be this, shot, this shortcut, this short journey to where we get to this place that God has promised. But it seems like God is in no rush to get the people out of the wilderness. That in fact, he wants them to take the scenic and the long roundabout way as they travel through the wilderness. And it is Egypt or it is Israel who is uncomfortable with the desert. Of course, the desert is the place where there's the hot, sweltering sun. There's a limited access to shade. There's not very much water. And when you do manage to find water, that means you stock up. And so you leave there. And again, the hot, sweltering sun now carrying all this extra weight and all this extra load. The wilderness has scorpions and snakes. And in my world, all you need to say is snakes, and I say, I want nothing to do with that place. And yet God, it seems, wants the people in the wilderness, and the people, it seems, don't want to be there. Because they like the shortcut. And I don't really think we're very different than Israel, are we? Uh, if you've ever used the Waze traffic app, what it does is it finds the shortest route possible. It finds where there's construction. It finds where there's traffic. And it gets you there as quickly and as efficiently as possible. What do you think is the likelihood of somebody developing an app that would take you the longest possible route? Through the most construction and the most traffic? I mean, that wouldn't sell because as Americans, we don't want the long way. We always want to find the shortest way possible. There's a doctor, Dr. Paul Brand, who writes a lot about pain and the human experience of pain. And he spent 27 years of his life in India, 25 years in England, and 27 years in the United States. 
And he said each of those cultures and places had a very different way of looking at pain and how they approached pain. He said in England, people saw pain as, as very much for a purpose or for a reason. As they had gone through the bombings of World War II, people realized that good things can come, even out of painful situations. He said what people in India did with pain was that they realized that one could have pain and do so with dignity and with respect. And so they embraced what pain could do in a person's life. And it was after those 52 years of having done medical work in those other countries that he moved to the United States. And he said the United States had one single thing that they ever wanted to do with pain. Escape it and avoid it. He was writing in the mid-1990s and he said at that time the pain management industry in the United States was a $63 billion industry. Whatever we do, we don't want to be in a painful or in an uncomfortable situation. So we're like Israel. We ourselves want the shortest way with as little pain as possible. And don't you think there's going to come a point in time when we're going to have a disconnect with this God? So we have a God who says, I like the, sh- the long cuts. And he has people following who say, all I ever want is a shortcut and a shortcut. There's going to come a point in time when we're going to find out that God's going to lead us somewhere where we don't want to go. So the point of Exodus 15, 23... 2 through 17, this time in the wilderness, is that God intentionally takes Israel the long way because he's got something that they need to learn about him and something that they need to learn about themselves. So what does God want Israel to learn about herself? Well, one of the first things God wants to Israel to learn is that Israel doesn't deserve God. The, the, the way that Israel is characterized in the book of Exodus is not like she's the prom queen or she's the most likely to succeed or she's the, the, the girl that every guy is chasing after. No, the, the characterization is much more negative. And so, so what I want us to do to just get a sense of the kind of a picture that's being painted here is, is I'm going to just mute everything else from the story other than what Israel says. I just want you to listen to her dialogue between Exodus chapter 5 through Exodus chapter 17. And, and, and as you're listening, ask yourself this question. If you knew Israel and you had another good friend, would you ever call your friend and say, hey, you really need to date this girl? I mean, I think your life would just be so much better if you could meet this girl. So let's listen. Mute everything else out other than what Israel says. And they said to them, the Lord look upon you and judge. You have brought us into a bad odor with Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. This, of course, is after the Red Sea. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed glorious. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then the Israelites said to them, If only we had died at the hand of the Lord In the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly 
with hunger. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Have you ever spent very much time around a chronic complainer? That's too hard. That's too easy. Why don't you ever call me? Why do you call me so much? It's not an awful lot of fun, is it? And so how many of you, as you're listening to Israel and the kind of character that she is, would say, this is good spouse material? How many of you think that at the 25th high school reunion, everybody's going to say, ooh, I wonder who was lucky enough to end up with Israel as their spouse? No. What you would want to do is you would want to meet the person who could put up with Israel. Who would Israel ever marry? That's who you want to meet when you get to the 25th high school reunion. Because even when Israel does have a good day, like she did in Exodus 15 when God delivers her and she sings these songs to God, there's the celebration and there's the praise. Just give her three days and all of that's going to change. And the grumbling and the complaining will come back again. What do you think it would sound like if Israel were out on a date and she called you on her date with God to tell you how it's going? I think this is how it would go. You wouldn't believe this guy. Do you know where he takes me on our first date? No, not to the movies. No, not to a fancy restaurant. No, not to a land flowing with milk and honey. He takes me to the wilderness. Not just one wilderness, not just two wildernesses, but three. To the wilderness of Shur, and then to Sin, and then to Rephidim. And he didn't call ahead, and he didn't make any plans. And so when we end up at Shur, there is not water that we can drink because it is so bitter. It tastes like sulfur and dung mixed together. What kind of a person brings their date to a place like this? And then we went to sin. And I was so hungry by that point, and there is nothing to eat. Not even a McDonald's in the neighborhood. And then afterwards, we go to Rephidim. When we arrive there, there's no water that we can find anywhere. You get the picture, don't you? Of how Israel feels like this date is going. You get the picture why she's not the most likely to get married and make her spouse happy, don't you? Grumbling and complaining. And yet we meet a God and learn things about God I think one of the things we learn about God, that he is gracious and dependable and trustworthy. Imagine God's phone call after that very same date. Where God says, when we arrived at the wilderness of shore, the water was bitter. And she complained, saying, what shall we drink? The friend asked, well, what, what did you do? Well, I provided for her. I solved the problem. I had Moses throw this piece of wood into the water, and the water became sweet. 
And then from there, we journeyed on to the wilderness of sin, and she was hungry. And instead of asking me politely if there was anything that we could do about it, she complained, saying, Have you brought us into this wilderness to kill us? And of course, the friend says, So what did you do? Did you just drop her off on the side of the road and said, Thank you very much. Have a good night. He said, No, I rained down bread from heaven upon her. Well, you're sure nicer than I would have been in that circumstance. And God says, then I took her to Rephidim. And it was there that there was no water to drink. And she demanded, saying, give us water to drink. And she tested me, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And the friend says, so what did you do then? Is that when you dropped her off and said you're on your own? He said, no, I provided for her and I gave her the water to drink. See, God has provided abundantly for Israel in the wilderness when she did not deserve it. And God was more gracious and more dependable and more trustworthy than I would venture to say most of you would have been in a situation like that. See, I think there's a misunderstanding when we think about Judaism and why the wilderness wandering is so important to their story. Sometimes they say, well, they are a people who think they're saved by their works. Have you read the wilderness wanderings? You can't get that impression from the wilderness wanderings. It wasn't because Israel was so nice and delightful that God went out of his way to pursue her as his spouse. She was characterized as poorly as possible so that God's graciousness could be exemplified. So that Israel would know that her relationship with God was based on God's kindness towards her and not her conduct towards God. Israel did not get what she deserved. God treated her better than she deserved. Now, you might be saying, what kind of a gracious God leads his people in the wilderness in order to test them? And if you're struggling with that question, it's probably because of the way you think about testing. You think about testing like a final exam or like an IRS audit that you think is probably the worst possible thing that could happen. But in the text, when it's talking about testing, it's talking more like teaching a lesson. Uh, so we find that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. So God is trying to develop within his people the lessons that are necessary that they can trust him. And that thereby, by trusting him, that they would not sin. So Israel needs to learn that God's going to take care of her. Israel needs to learn that when she finds out that she's in a scary place, God will be present there with her. She needs to learn that when she doesn't have the strength necessary to do something and fix a problem, that God will do something and that God will fix the problem. She needs to know that when she doesn't have the resources she needs, that God does have the resources that are needed. So God takes Israel to the wilderness to teach her these lessons that she needs to learn. Israel, it seems to me, has the same issue as a lot of children before they develop what is called object permanence. Usually at age two or three, kids begin to realize that just because they can't see something doesn't mean it disappeared. So before they develop object permanence, a parent will leave the room and the kid will cry because when mom or dad is not in sight, it's as if they just disappeared from the face of the earth. The kid doesn't know that the mom or dad's in the next room. They, parents could just as easily be in Africa for all the kid knows. But then once they develop object permanence, they will realize that even when something's not there, it's still there. Mom's just in the kitchen, and so they give mom a little more flexibility. 
to go out of their sight. And that's what God is wanting Israel to learn. Even when you can't see me, I'm here. Even when it looks like I've left the scene, I haven't. So he takes them into the desert so that they might learn God's permanent presence with them. Because in Egypt, when God brought them out, he did some very uh, visible, miraculous things. But going forward, God's going to begin working in a very different way. It's not going to be as glamorous. It's not going to be as surprising. And God wants them to learn that no matter where they are, he's continuing to be present and to provide for them. But the wilderness wanderings teaches us something else about God, too. It teaches us that God does punish Israel in the face of her constant rebellion. To say that God is gracious does not mean that God's grace has no limits. To say that God is patient doesn't mean that God's patience has no limits. There does come a time, and it's much later than any of us would have ever done, but where God says to his people that enough is enough. We find in Numbers chapter 11, probably about two years after these texts are recorded, we find God responding to their complaining and murmuring in this way. Now when the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, the Lord heard it and his anger was kindled. Then the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. What we will find is an escalation in the behavior of the people of Israel. See, we find it escalates to the point that they even say to God, when God takes them to test them, guess what the people end up doing? They end up testing God. What testing God means is is you have a list and a criteria, and you give this paper to God, and you say, if you do all of these things, I will believe that you're a good God. But if you don't do all of these things, I'm not going to believe it. And here's the problem. We're a shortcut people. So guess what all the things on our list are going to be? Shortcut things. God, if you make this shortcut happen and this shortcut happen and this shortcut happen, then I will believe that you're a good God. And so Israel is testing God because they're saying, you're not doing what we want you to do here. So is the Lord really among us or not? Do we ever test God in a similar way? Shortcut questions to make him prove his goodness? If you really are a good God, then you're going to get rid of the boss that's driving me crazy. Isn't that a shortcut request? If you really are a good God, you'll help my children do exactly what I tell them. A shortcut request. If you are a good God, you will deal with the disability that's affecting me today. That's a shortcut request. We are constantly asking God for shortcuts of the God who likes to take Long cuts. The roundabout way through the wilderness. When we're looking for the closest door to get out of the wilderness, God's saying, walk with me. Learn about me and learn about yourself in the midst of this wilderness. So I think it's fair to say that the wilderness wanderings show us at least two things. The first is that Israel failed to learn what God wanted them to learn in the wilderness. And the second and perhaps the most amazing thing is that God married her anyways. Because that's the kind of God he is. He, he marries the one that at high school graduation you think nobody would ever marry. Because nobody could ever put up with her. And God is wanting to show if I can put up with Israel, I can put up with any of you. 
If the kinds of people that you would not want to stay in the room with for more than five minutes, God says, I will marry this person. God is communicating his love for all people. And did you know that the wilderness wanderings, they come up again in the New Testament? Isn't that funny how all these things in the Old Testament happen to come up again? In Matthew chapter 4, we read this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. Hmm. Where is Jesus? In the wilderness. And how did he get there? He was led there by the Spirit of God. So Jesus is like Israel, having gone into the wilderness, taking the long road, the long way that God has prescribed. Of course, Israel was there for 40 years, and Jesus now spends a, 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 a metaphoric 40 days and 40 nights. And remember how Israel felt when they arrived at Rephidim? They were hungry, and that's why we're told after the 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. But now what I want to do is the same thing we did with Israel. We're going to mute everything else and just hear Jesus' words. We'll see if he fared any better. We'll see if there's anything more attractive about the way that Jesus speaks in the wilderness as compared to Israel. And so these are the words that were spoken there. It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Don't you get the sense that Jesus is beginning to fulfill the just requirements of the law? That Jesus is doing what Israel could not do? That, Israel is, that, that Jesus is obedient in a way that Israel was not obedient? That, that when they were in the desert, God said, Listen carefully to my voice. Heed my commandments, keep my statutes, and they did not. But Jesus shows that he will. He will listen to the Father. He will heed the commandments, and he will keep every statute of God. And then the New Testament does this really interesting thing. It invites us to be joined in union with Jesus Christ. For when you're buried in the waters of baptism, so you are raised to the newness of life. And what is happening through baptism, through the ministry of Jesus, is we are connected so that his just obedience to God becomes our just obedience to God. That his obedience here now becomes our obedience. And God treats us, his righteousness then becomes our righteousness. And so I guess the question for us is, do you trust God enough to let you lead to let him lead you into the wilderness. And, and then when you end up in the wilderness, for a baptized believer, there is this recognition. We don't need to ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? Because it's not just that he's among us, but he's where? He's within us. Christ living within you. The Spirit of God living within you. And do you trust that Christ enough? That as he was faithful, he will teach you to be faithful in the wilderness too. 
Whenever we end up in the wilderness, we have a reliable, experienced guide. So there is no reason to complain. There is no reason to question God because God has shown us through Christ that he will equip us with whatever is necessary when he leads us along the long road. Which I guess would, for me, bear the question, what if I'm not baptized? If I'm not baptized, I'm going to end up in the wilderness without the resources necessary. And so the grace of God is that he offers all of us an opportunity to have Christ within you. The one who is successful in the wilderness, God gives him as a gift. And you might say, I don't deserve that union. That's true. Because no one nowhere in history deserved the union that God has offered. But God is gracious and compassionate. And he offers all of us the opportunity to respond. To give ourselves completely to him. To trust Christ enough that Christ will do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. And so as we finish this morning, I want to offer this word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And here we remember, just like we learned out of the wilderness, that when we leave, we leave with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We leave with the love of God. And we leave with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Never alone. Is the Lord among us or not? He is indeed. If you want to respond in any way, I invite you to do that as we stand and as we sing this next song together. When we walk with the Lord.